podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my good friend, Scott Silverman, a well-known crisis coach, one of the foremost authorities when it comes to a crisis within a family or relationships or an individual's addiction crisis. This includes individuals that feel hopeless, frustrated, trapped, and they may feel that they have tried everything they can think of, but nothing has been working. Scott, your clients are not only families and teens, but also business executives and former, former military veterans. Now, like myself, after years of living in the fast lane of life, Scott has switched gears and is being of service to others, having all of these issues, which is just so prevalent in our world today, especially since the pandemic that has affected the entire world. We're honored that Scott is sharing some of his time with us today. Scott, how are you today? I'm great, Tim. It's really, really nice to be here and uh, talking about a topic that's uh, very close to my heart. You bet. We're glad you're here. You, you're now working as a very successful crisis counselor or crisis coach, and your work really piques my interest. Can you tell us a little bit about everything that you currently do? Well, the, the primary piece of what I do is I... Uh, work with families. I call myself a crisis coach and a family navigator because what I like to do is really help the family, you know, get to the highest and best level of care they can. Everyone is a little bit different and everyone, you know, we believe one size does not fit all when it comes to treatment and especially those who are suffering from the disease of addiction. And, you know, once you remove <clears throat> the anesthesia, I like to say, then the real work starts to happen with the mental health, the underlying behavioral health issues, the untreated trauma, the catastrophic events that in some cases drive that uh, need for self-medication. Simultaneously, I work at a small boutique. I call it boutique because it's small uh, outpatient program. We're certified by the state of California, take a lot of uh, you know, in-network insurance. That's kind of how we got started seven years ago, working with first responders and professionals who didn't want to go into kind of the mainstream treatment modalities and found that sometimes uh, an anonymous program wasn't enough or they were too concerned about their public exposure, if you will, you know, going to meetings. So at the end of the day, what I do is start with usually with a phone call from the family and start to help them navigate. And then I move forward from there. That sounds great. Um, let me frame our discussion and then we can drill down into specifics. Um, I read that one time you were deep into addiction and like myself, you have tried to take your life. Did you ever think you would flip the script, so to speak, and be such an influencer in all of these areas that you're currently immersed in? No, I, I grew up uh, in a family business, a retail business, uh, sometimes referred to as a schmata business, selling women's clothes, uh, fragrances, shoes, lingerie back in the day. And there was nothing in my trajectory that said I'd be in the helping people business other than customer service and making sure that you know, customers were happy with the product that we provided for them. So now this, was, this was never in my suitcase. This was never in my briefcase. This was never in my bag of tricks. Uh, all of it came pretty much and started uh, after 
I, I made an attempt. I'm taking my own life. And luckily, uh, I'm still here. So clearly, divine intervention helped. And then um, after I got clean and sober, I started you know, trying to figure out what I needed to do next. And, you know, this path of helping others was put in front of me from a different level. And eventually, I've grown into what I currently do today. I've always been a, I call it a, ha- a hapless or hopeless helper. And I've always enjoyed that. But now I've just formalized it all. And I'm trying to find ways to get to more people more frequently to try to avoid going to more funerals. That's great. Um, I just, uh, I would like to know a little bit about when you started into risky behavior and, and what that looked like and what you thought was going on and, uh, you know, how, how you got to the other side. I, I like the way you candy coat that risky behavior. It sounds like something, you know, somebody from the ivory tower. We saw someone driving by inappropriately. Well, you know, I, I traditional, uh, family situation where, you know, I was the black sheep traditional in the sense of I was the black sheep and I just had some behavior issues. I remember one of the kickoffs was in second grade at a public school out in uh, here in San Diego. And uh, a buddy of mine had just come back from a skiing trip with his family, broke his leg. And he had come back to school a few weeks later when the playground and he takes his shoe off and he throws it at me. And, you know, being a good friend, I picked it back up and threw it back at him and happened to hit the fracture where he broke his leg and rebroke his leg. I mean, what are the odds of that? So I was profiled from second grade on and they brought me in for a psyche valve and recommended I get to a smaller school where I could be monitored more effectively. And I did go to a smaller school. And then in fifth grade, I had a teacher who had a heart attack and they tried to blame me for it. So, you know, I was... uh, I was kind of marked, if you will, and blacklisted as a behavioral problem. Uh, Those days, they really didn't have a whole lot other than trying to do a diagnosis. And then when I got evaluated, I threw all those little blocks and I hit the psychologist in the eye. And that was a problem because he had to have surgery. So, you know, things just kind of rambled on. And then in my teens, I, you know, like a lot of people, I started drinking. Uh, Not like a lot of people. I just experimented with drinking and and then I, I liked it. And I liked the way it made me feel. And and then uh, I would live in the state college area and I didn't like waiting in line um, at the keggers for the beer. So I ended up going to 7-Eleven with a shirt tie on when I was 15 and uh, buying alcohol um, legally. They thought I was old enough and I drank uh, Southern Comfort because a half pint fit perfectly in a pair of 501 Levi jeans and didn't have to wait in line for booze. So I thought I was a smart guy. Cool. And then, so then when did you know and what drove you to flip that script and start working in the area of recovery? Well, that, that really came later on. I I did, I had about a 15 year career as a, uh, I was an unlicensed pharmacist. I was actually retired. I have my daughter's an attorney and I have to say I was, I'm a retired unlicensed pharmacist. So there's no confusion for people. And uh, substance abuse pretty much, you know, was half my life, if not more than that, till I turned about 30. And when I turned 30, I was starting to get some help professionally asking about, you know, hey, look, I'm I depressed. I get depressed. I am depressed and I drink. Can you help me remove the depression so I can stop drinking? Gosh, I've heard that a million times from people. We don't have a drinking problem. We just have, you know, the inability to feel problems. So help me with the feelings and I won't need the anesthesia. Well, that didn't work. So after I crashed and burned, went into treatment, it was uh, November the 13th, 1984 is my sobriety date. So coming up in a couple of more weeks, I'll have, uh, God willing, 36, uh, 36 years. And 36 is a magic number uh, for me. So I'm looking forward to uh, doing everything I can to get there and, and beyond. I mean, it's not, you know, I remember when I first got sober, one of my goals was to celebrate a year of sobriety and go back out and get shit faced. I mean, Oh my God. I mean, that's the insane thinking of this disease. So it would really, I, I spent a couple of years, like I mentioned earlier, just trying to figure out who I was and what I needed to do. And then I got into the housing business and then I got in doing uh, drug and gang eradication work, very specialized field. And then after that, I started volunteering a lot in a, a structure of, of a shelter. And that's when I kind of realized uh, a new calling that I wanted to really help people in a formal way. 
I mean, the system kind of pissed me off, but, and that's what triggered my desire to open up a nonprofit and start working with people coming out of jail and prison. So that was a real passion. Did that for 18 years and then took a couple of years of consulting, then opened, you know, I started my, I think this is my sixth business with confidential recovery, doing outpatient substance abuse treatment uh, just seven years ago. And I'm 66 now. So I was what, 59 starting a new business. Um, and I've always been counseling people, not counseling, but consulting, coaching, and then formalized it about 10 years ago and realized that there's a resource out there. And when people pay money for advice, they generally take it differently than when you just give advice. That's a great story. Um, you work with a lot of different people. Is, is there, uh, what's your style of coaching or communication? What's your central message that you try and get across? Well, I, I hope you've got a sense of it this morning. <laughs> I'm pretty direct. Um, I'm, I believe in tough love. And, and what I mean by tough love is telling the truth. And the other important part of tough love is also listening very carefully to the person you're talking to. The other part of my style is simply realizing, you know, God gave me two ears and one mouth and listening is very important. But there's also a time when the family really has to just be quiet and they have to take some suggestions, especially if their motivation is to hug someone to wellness who is under the influence, potentially is near overdosing, has overdosed has a couple DUI. I mean, clearly the behavior of the, of the, the individual they love the, the most is on a path that is just not going to fix itself. So what I try to do is I work with the whole family and then I make referrals to the clinical experts and to the psychologist and the psychiatrist. So I'm an advocate for getting people access to the highest and best care possible. So what I'm really wedded to is the overall wellness of an individual. That's really where my heart is at meaning I'm not a clinician. I, I have a treatment center, but I, the treatment center was started, to be honest with you, and I can't do it any other way, is I got tired of watching people relapse and die. I got tired of watching people who I know well enough to know that if they had got some additional support, they might be alive today. That's uh, very similar to my story. And uh, I couldn't see any more of my friends. I would talk to them on a Friday. And on Monday, I'd get a phone call saying, oh, did you know that Joe hung himself on Sunday? And I just couldn't take it anymore. And, and I had gone through similar story. And I just, that's when I decided to take on this, this book and podcast and try and get the message out. And I saw where my depression, I've been diagnosed with severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And I saw where the depression was the spark for my addictions. And I also saw that 300 million people have depression in the world, but only 150 million get help. So if, if I can help close that gap, then I can help people move forward in their life. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So I really appreciate your work since I've been doing that work. Where, where, where have you felt the most gratification in your work? Uh, what, is there a certain time or place or individual that you worked with that, uh, you know, you, you just walked away and said, wow, that I never thought we could really pull this one off. It was really great. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the short answer on that is I was very fortunate, you know, with my work at Second Chance, working with people that, you know, came from some non-traditional working paths, I used to call it, and they've been down with doing jail time or prison time. And what I found is um, my, my biggest gratification would be that I'd be somewhere sometime, you know, simple, something as simple as the zoo or SeaWorld or at a restaurant, you know, at a ball game. And somebody would walk up to me and he goes, hey, class 63, remember me? I'm Bob. And, you know, get up and give him a hug because I taught class every day for over 15 years uh, just for an hour. And then I gave it to the trainers to take care of it. And this guy 
you know, I remember briefly some of his history, but watching someone who got their family back, got clean and sober, you know, dug in, took the long road to get to where they wanted to go, but stuck with it and then made a success of themselves, the more importantly for their families. That to me is the largest, biggest gift that I've ever gotten with serving others. Great. Um, this, got, this work is stressful and very difficult. And I'm curious as to, at the end of the day, do you ever come home and feel overwhelmed and stressed and felt that it was just too challenging and you were overwhelmed? Well, you know, Tim, we were talking about it earlier. I uh, I no longer come home anymore because I can't leave the house. So <laughs> it's in some ways it's kind of worse. But um, you know, I I laugh about it because it's you know I I last year I, I put a shed outside of my garage because I I'm I guess it's somewhat of a hoarder or I don't like you know I don't like to do garage sales like I used to when I was younger. So I, I, instead of making things neater, I need more space to store them. And um, probably uh, a 12-step program for, their, for that somewhere, but I'm not going to look into it yet. Anyway, so I moved out you know, this year into the shed, and, and I kind of set up a little microphone and started getting into to, to podcasting like you're doing. And that's really become a lot of fun and excitement for me. Um, I used to walk a lot, so now I don't. So now I eat a lot which is, you know, not, not turning out to be a good pivot point. Um, but I know I'm not alone, but, you know, it's interesting walking. I, you know, I, I'm a compulsive, obsessive, addictive person. But the only thing that's escaped me my entire adult life is exercise. And again, I said I was 66 and, and I'll be 67 next year. And I've had all this time that I could, you know, I get up normally at 536. I could go for a 45 minute walk every day and never interfere with anything. And I think of each day that I don't do it and I do spend more time not doing it than doing it. So that's really my, my biggest thing in front of me right now. And I have it on my calendar it pops up at 545, you know, in capital letters, walk, walk, walk. So walking, you know, with my wife and I is something I like to do. And we used to go to the farmer's market. So that kind of, that structure broke a little bit, but I'm at a point now that the elastic in my shorts is screaming at me. So I know that if I don't start walking and making some better food choices, then other things will, will kick in. So, you know, and I have a couple of girls, um, our kids are just wonderful. And my, our oldest lives in town and she's the only one we actually let into the house. And I have a friend that comes by, you know, whatever we can get together on Sundays. And um, I like to, you know, I like to watch TV and I, I've been monitoring the news. I feel like an eye reporter because when you, if you were to call me any day of the week and go, okay, where are we at now? I could give you a quick recap. And I've kind of been obsessed watching this whole thing with the virus. And, and um, I'm also an SME here in San Diego, subject matter expert. So I go on to KOSI, the local television station, uh, periodically, usually once or twice a month, and talk about whatever's topical. So really for me, it's work. I'm on the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. I'm also... Um, on the methamphetamine uh, drug abuse task force as well. And I run a nonprofit called uh, safe homes coalition, which is all about um, helping families remove unsafe and unused uh, medication out of the home. So then I sit on another board or two. And so I stay really busy. I stay really busy. Good. Good. Well, your clientele are very different. People have emotional distress, anger issues, entitlements, substance abuse, to name a few. And that's got to be challenging. How, how do you handle all those various personalities? Well, I, I, like, to, I like the diversity in it. And, you know, there's, there's an interesting piece that I've learned because I've worked with so many thousands of people uh, over the years and tens of thousands of people and thousands of families. So there's some core things that are very similar. And then there's some, are some unique things that take place as well. I, I enjoy the challenge. I, I really do. And I, I, I generally, by the time somebody calls me, Tim, they're, you know, they're kind of stuck under the wheel. Well, they've been run over emotionally. And, and most of the time the calls I get are not from the person who needs the help. It's a family member, a colleague, uh, a, a neighbor, you know, an employer. So when they're calling me, the, the, the good news is I, I kind of know that they're probably ready to hear some things that they need to hear. And more importantly, they're willing to look at those things and maybe take some appropriate action. So in a sense, I have a very 
complicated client with a lot of denial, but a high level of motivation to do something because what they're watching unfold in front of them, they don't know how to deal with, and they certainly don't know how to manage it. And they're finally getting to the point where they're asking for help. So that helps a lot, but it is stressful because, you know, if, if it's a family member and the money's gone and they don't have insurance, navigating the healthcare system, especially in today's world is very complicated. And a majority of people going through emergency rooms right now, a majority that are overdosing are on Medi-Cal, you know, or Medicaid. And they don't have insurance and there aren't beds left and there aren't a lot of treatment providers who uh, most don't take Medicare or Medi-Cal. Some do Medicare, but not Medi-Cal. That's the county funded program. So we know that a lot of people that need help aren't going to get to the appropriate level. And those who are sitting in there in county facilities, they're busy. They're overloaded. Ratios of staff to clients are very very high and it's uh, complicated because you're dealing with someone probably doesn't want to be there anyway and you do what you can to support the, the process. Let's, let's take a, a little pivot here and look at your nuclear family while you were growing up as a, as a kid. Uh, where did you grow up? San Diego? I grew, up, grew up in Mount Helix in San Diego. been here oh. my whole life actually. I'm a native and so is my wife. So uh, lucky for us, we, we live in America's finest city. Great. And how would you characterize your father as a man? How did he, was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love, discuss emotions and feelings, talk I, to you? My folks, you know, because it was a family business, they were kind of like co-CEOs. So when we had family dinners, they were like, uh, uh, business development meetings. And I remember when I got sent away to boys school, my dad would send me these three part, you know, NCR papered memos, you know, and his, his secretary would type them and he'd sign them, love dad. So um, I, I told him, I said, you know, dad, it doesn't really matter. You, you, you know, I can read your handwriting. He goes, well, but I just, you know, I want to be timely and I want to get information out to you. He's pretty funny. He was old school, uh, quality guy, very well loved by everybody. He's one of those kind of people we'd walk around town and, hey, Sid, everyone knew him. I mean, from, from the guy that was, you know, maybe at the airport shining shoes to the person at the bank, uh, go to a Chinese restaurant, everybody knew him. You know, we'd sit down for lunch. And so working with my family was kind of unique. And neither one of them drank, which was interesting that I ever saw. And, but they were workaholics. And my mom was really a workaholic. But he was a kind person and he all, you know, but he wasn't a touchy feely kind of guy. He's old school coupon clipper post suppression kind of guy. But, you know, uh, in, a, in a Jewish family, if they can't motivate you, they guilt you to death. And that, that between them, they worked that part of it. But he was always involved with the community, always sat on committees, volunteered a lot and was just a really kind person. Um, and I remember when my brother first came out and said he would share that he was gay. My dad was like, well, that's just one of those things we're going to have to make adjustments with. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. And it was um, very forgiving, very passionate. And um, I miss him a lot. We, uh, we lost him years ago. We lost my mom, my dad, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law all in a four-year period. Mm. It was a very interesting time. And that's, um, I was really tested. As a matter of fact, today, today is my dad's uh, anniversary of his passing. So he was a great guy. And um, I miss him a lot. I miss him a lot. He, he gave me, he gave me whatever I wanted, accepted who I was and always did his best to support me in everything I did. And when he didn't like it, he usually, he would complain softly, but not to me. So I feel blessed to have that kind of dad. And, and, mom. and has that influenced your view on what masculinity is? Do you think? Yeah, I think in, in many ways, you know, because he was for an old school guy, you know, came from, uh, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, lived in Arizona for a while, then moved to San Diego in 49. So this is kind of all of what I've known. You know, I was uh, born here. So his, his roots, I never really got to experience. But yes, I think his masculinity, and, and he was one of those kind of guys that, you know, it was interesting. One year, my grandmother, um, for lack of a better term, needed behavioral health support. The next year, no, my dad went to a facility. Then the next year, my grandmother went, and then a, a year and a half later, roughly, he, my dad went back again, and then a year later, this, and this is interesting, all in the month of November, 
is when my family had their mental health issues. So my dad had two major episodes. And then the next year was my turn. I went into rehab in 84. So he, and he suffered a, a horrible uh, depression. And a lot of it was around the fact that he felt, he felt like he failed. And uh, he, he, did, he did what he did on his trajectory, trying to expand. And uh, I remember growing up, I heard the story, one day this will all be yours. Mm. You know? And, you know, all the spouses that married into the family heard that message and go, oh, this is cool. We're all going to be set for life. Nobody was. You know, he basically went to expand in a period of time that was horrible and it nearly killed him. That was one of the episodes that he had. So he was a, a, a raw individual who felt those things. And, you know, he was impacted by what took place and was a, a guy that all he did was try to help the family and empower the family. And he was all about family. So his masculinity was pretty strong. And, but I can remember going to like Indian guides and playing little league. He was never there. My mom came because he was busy working. So when, when he was going through his depression or you were going through your depression or, or acting out. Did you ever think that the masculinity norms that you grew up with had an effect on either your father or yourself as far as acting for help? Was that a deterrent because, you know, you were part of the good old boy network who's always strong and never needed help and had those, you know, deal with their own issues or did that not matter? And you just reached out for help because you knew you needed help. Well, I, there's, there's two parts I want to say, but first I want to ask you about that. Cause I, in, in your questions that you sent me, tell me when you use that term, what your what, what that means to you masculine. when you talk about that, because I, I think I have a sense of what you mean, but I want to understand I understand the question, but I w I'm looking at it a couple of different ways. And, and because it's an interesting term that kind of hangs out there and, and I think it's interpreted a couple of different ways, let me just push you a little bit and, and, and ask you to kind of define that for me. Well, just the precursor. I mean, today we see a lot of what they call toxic masculinity, where a man feels like he cannot share his feelings or emotions with another person, whether it be a doctor or another man. Sometimes men share those feelings and emotions with other women, but, you know, women can't relate because they're women. They're not men. So they focus their time and effort into overworking, being a workaholic, uh, being strong, having the biggest car, being able to outdrink anybody, being able to, you know, beat up on anybody, having the most girlfriends, having the most money, and being that tough guy. But they don't share their emotions or feelings with other men to get help. And they don't make room for a woman to be the woman that she is and express herself and she wants to be heard and she wants to know that the husband or, or boyfriend cares enough to listen to her issues without him fixing them. So I, my, I've got a three pronged definition of masculinity. The first one I label as Clint, like Clint Eastwood. The guy who does the tough things, which can be moving the piano down the three flights of stairs into the truck, but also taking on the tough meetings, the tough discussions that he has to have with either his friends, his family, his daughter, his wife, his, his uh, work associates, and he, like you said, tough love. You know that it's going to be a tough discussion and the person's not really going to want to hear it, but you know that it's a must, that they, they must hear it in order to progress. That's one side of the triangle. The other side of the triangle, man has to not take life so seriously and realize that 
having a sense of humor is a very big part of being a man and, and being able to, you know, just let things roll off your back and not make a big deal or argue and always try to be right. And the third side of the coin is spirituality. You know, um, uh, Gandhi, these people had some sense of spirituality. Martin Luther King, it doesn't matter what your path is, just that you, you have something, some relationship with a power greater than yourself to kind of base yourself in and, and get some balance. So that's, that's how I look at it. Okay. All right. I, I get all that. And it makes sense. Um, but I'll, and I'll now answer your question. I, I think I had a very unique opportunity growing up and I'll tell you why from the day I was born, you know, I was taken to work by my family and in the women's clothing business, 95% of the workforce were female executive level. And this, we're talking back in the sixties, executive level, leadership, management, training, corporate, you know, back office, the women ran the business. So I, I think I got lucky and have what I call a highly developed feminine side. And because I was in charge of personnel and I was in charge of productivity, I had a chance to, you know, hear the stuff <laughs> that you hear in such volume. I mean, we had a time that there was, you know, 300 plus employees and again, 95% were women. I mean, even the truck drivers, the reception people, the people in the marking room, uh, maintenance people, wh wherever we could. And that was just the way it worked. And so I think I had a chance to get into the feely, touchy part of the world earlier on. And it's interesting because my parents weren't, they would always be willing to listen. But, you know, you, you could sometimes tell, uh, and I've become a body language expert, that someone may be hearing you but not listening to you. So I think the answer to your question is I had a chance to really get a hybrid exposure to uh, an opportunity that's pretty unique, especially for men. Uh, because when, it came, when I came into recovery and people said, you know, we will love you until you love yourself, I'm like, what does that even mean? And when I understood it, and I hung around and continued to listen, I really got a better sense for it. So I find myself not having roadblocks that I know a lot of people have, because especially as you get older, if you haven't had a chance to share how you feel with somebody else and somebody else share with you and experience empathy and pain and sadness and joy with another person, uh, especially with a man, uh, if you will, it, it's, it's like you're missing part of life. And when it starts to get introduced, it's like, this is a foreign language. What do you, I, you know, it's going in, but I don't understand it. That's why I wanted to clarify with you what I thought you meant. And I, I think the three prong piece is good. And then when you start to lay that out for people, I'm sure you've seen it. They're like, what, what are you talking about? I told you how I felt. I hate that song, bitch. <laughs> no, no, <that's laughs> no, I need you. Can you go deeper? You know, so you just, you frame it differently. And keep in mind when, when I ran the, my program it, for homeless and, and people coming out of prison, there was none of that because you don't, you don't survive in the world in some people's mind, uh, letting them know how you feel, because if you let them know how you feel, then they know how to manipulate you or you let your guard down and survival is what everybody does in prison. That's your main goal is to live through today. So when you start talking about, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, so how are you feeling about today? You know, these guys would look at you like, you know, all tatted up going, what? But once you introduce it and, you, and people see the value, it's like, you know, getting a, a great cup of coffee somewhere or a really nice piece of pizza or enjoying a concert or just learning how to, you know, I remember early in recovery, they said, they said to me, you should go spend some time alone, go for a walk. And I go, well, and spend time with yourself. I said, well, what if I get bored? And the answer was, well, consider the company you're with at that time. <laughs> and think about that. So I, I got some great lessons, you know, in recovery and in groups and with, you know, smart clinical people, my sponsor, sponsees. And I think I'm really lucky. And I think that probably, not probably, contributes to my ability to work with others, I believe. 
and accept them where they're at. That, that's, that's a great story, and it is unique. You know, not, not every man and not a lot of men get to experience that so they can see the whole masculine-feminine dynamic mm-hmm. and how they fit in. So that sounds great. Personally, I have severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring, as I mentioned, which my doctor told me was the root of my addictive behavior. Is it recurring right now? Should I uh, talk a little slower, look into the <laughs> Luckily, after becoming sober, uh, I got treated for this, and I've never felt I, better. I, I didn't mean to tease you about that, but it was such a great opening. You know, I just want to no, make sure. <laughs> if we're having an episode now, I just want to share it with you. <laughs> That's awesome. But, you know, I look back once I did self-discovery and, and found that, you know, my family abused me uh, physically, verbally, uh, emotionally. And I was curious whether you experienced any of that kind of abuse growing up. For me, you know, and, and I kind of tell you, I, I hear that so often. And it's, it's almost like it was common in families, you know, uh, you know I'm the king, long live the king. And the, the things that I probably miss the most is my parents always worked. So I, you know, I, I spun that abandonment issue for a little while. But one of the things that I've learned in, in my own personal um, uh, travels and experience is that if we hang on to that too much, we let it become a barrier for change. So, uh, but I think it's very common. And I, that's the, what I use the term. I like the term untreated trauma. That's exactly what that's bundled into is things that happen to us as children, young people that never got addressed. And so we found a way to conceal it, to bury it, camouflage it, you know, or, or retwist it in a way that we used it as a defense mechanism. I mean, when I was in third grade, leaving the second grade situation I told you about, my third day in school, the teacher said, Mr. Silver, they were very formal there, Francis Parker, could you come to the map and point out the Atlantic Ocean for us? I didn't know which side of the map it was on. I had no idea. And when I went up, I had a 50-50 chance of getting it wrong, and I did. And I remember going back to my desk, everyone was laughing at me. And that was such a powerful moment to say, I will never let this happen again. And I broke all my new number two pencils, and I threw them at the teacher. Well, that got me down to the principal. (laughs) This is my third day in my new school. So I think it is something, and that's one of the things that, you know, we do at Confidential. We talk a lot about mindfulness. We talk a lot about gut health. We talk a lot about accessing, you know, breathing, meditation, journaling, and adding tools to the toolbox, we like to call it, because, and then sending people to trauma specialists, and then PTSD that goes untreated. I mean, we're, we're now um, starting to work with veterans, which is very, very exciting, and uh, hang on a second, to cough there, and it, in watching people, because I get to watch people go through that transformation, you know, it's, I don't have a lot of client contact, but watching it happen is really exciting because once it does, it's almost like, you know, walking around with 25 extra pounds of weight you have to carry in each hand, baggage, and you, when you set it down and let it go, it's amazing to watch people fly. And, and it's not that complicated. There are some great tools out there. EMR is one of them. There's obviously medication that people can take. We have tools today, and... I'm very proactive. You know, there's a term called MAT, medication-assisted treatment. Uh, and a lot of, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the treatment modalities are abstinence-based. I don't believe in that. I believe it works for some people, not others. Harm reduction. You know, I remember when I first heard about methadone, thinking, oh, my God, people are getting synthetic heroin. First, I got pissed because I couldn't do it. Second, I, it confused me why someone would be dosing up every day on something that was preventing them getting back to their drug of choice but it's a great tool. So I've learned a lot about how to deal with the, the, the big broader picture. And I don't even take politics into it. I take the overall well-being of human beings and their own bottom line, which is their happiness. And I think everybody, everyone deserves a second chance. I believe everyone can get help. And I think it's out there. That's great. Now we both mentioned uh, that we were challenged by depression or mental health issues. How did you handle that? Did you do anything about it? Did you keep it to yourself? Did you ask for help? 
What did that look like? I, I was one of those people. I found the hotline, 1-800-WAN-WAN, and I called it. You know, piss and moan anonymous. I, I, I thought that's what meetings were for, was to go and, and leave as much as you could and share as much as you could. And I've learned over the years that half the people that go to meetings, they go to hear how bad someone else had it so they can feel better about themselves. But I, I just, I know that I'm as, only as sick as my secrets. I also know that for me to carry this around uh, is, it's my own ego, you know, and I look at ego as edging God out. I don't believe me carrying around the burden of the pain of the depression. And I think going through the loss that I had with my family and my wife's family and talking about all of that and knowing it was coming. I mean, I was, I'm the caregiver. I'm, I am a hopeless helper. So, you know, and I, you'd think I'd be going to, to Al-Anon more and I probably should, but I'm afraid I don't want to meet a whole new group of, well, people that need help. <laughs> I, I do that as, as a profession, but you know, I, I find that, you know, cause I'm not really a reader. I have a God box. I, I put things in it all the time. I have a, a higher power. And I have a God. I've used both because being Jewish, I never know which one's on vacation. So I've got to have that, that power greater than myself available. And I um, do everything I can, it feels like, each day to try to surrender as best I can and know that, you know, I, my, I have a new book coming out. Um, I'll talk more about it down the road. But the, the, the working title, which is shifted now, and I, I share it because I love the title, is uh, You're Not God, That Job Is Taken. And it's, uh, it, it's going to be called the opioid epidemic just because I'm so passionate about that topic and, and then weave that story into it. Because I think I've learned that over the years, working with people who suffer from, you know, high levels of narcissism, big egos, you know, self-reliance, uh, grandiose personalities, uh, people in very important jobs. And I used to be a fundraiser. So you meet, you meet a lot of powerful, successful people and then, on the other hand, you see those, the doctors and the lawyers and the professionals who have these issues with addiction, they're no different than anybody else. And I believe we're all just one of God's children. That's the way I look at it. So I don't even know if I answered your question or not. I hope I did. No, it was great. It was great. Uh, you mentioned that you have children. I do. So you're a father. Are you easy? Are you tough? Do you lose your cool? Do you yell and scream? Do you show them love? share emotions. How do you characterize yourself as a father? You know, I, I get asked that question probably like you do. And when I think about it, I try to think about responding through what my kids would be saying if they were sitting here. And I know them well enough to know that they will tell the truth. So my sense is this. I've, I've always been a fair dad. I got that from my dad. I've always been a dad that never wanted to say no, you know, and my first book is called Tell Me No, I Dare You. So I was one of those kind of dads that I was a drive-by parent and not that you ever saw me because I was very clandestine and I would work on trying to be present and make sure we, we all sat down to dinner. And it's interesting, science shows that families that sit down to dinner three nights a week are the families that have the least amount of problems, which is, in, I'm not talking medical, I'm talking emotional, because they're talking to each other or listening to each other, or they have that moment of accountability at the end of the day. And I grew up like that. The problem in my family was when we went around the table, how was your day? You know, I was the black sheep. Well, I broke another window in the third grade school, you know, <laughs> wing of, so I never liked sharing like that. But I found that, um, I, I listened as much as I can, could, and when I couldn't anymore, I, I try to remove myself. But no, I still have temper tantrums, and I remember the story I love to tell about my daughter is um, she came to me one night, and she wanted to go to the movies. And she was talking about her friends in the week before, and there were some issues going on at schools, and I speak a lot at schools. I used to a lot about substance abuse and how to get help and how to ask questions and you know, how to inform yourself as best possible. So when you make these decisions to do different things, you're able to um, make the right ones or make them informed decisions, if you will. So she's going off to the movies with her buddies and she said, we're going to go. So I said, well, isn't that the group you mentioned last week that you said we're in a lot of trouble? Because I was listening. So I was just brought it back up and she's, yeah. I said, okay. I said, tell you what, um, I'll go with you. <laughs> Where? To the movies. Wait, wait, we're just, my friends and I are going to go. 
I said, well, you know, you can give us a ride. I said, nah, nah I like the idea of the movie. I'll, I'll give you a ride. I'll just sit in a different part of the theater. So 10 minutes later, they, the other girls were all over for the night. We came back. Now nah, we're just going to watch TVS. Okay. <laughs> that was me trying not to say no and trying to empower them to process uh, their, you know, what they were going through. So that's the kind of parenting I think, you know, and, and I was at home when my first child was born. So we were together every day. I mean, I would take her everywhere with me. And I was in the property management arena during those days. So we'd get up in the morning, I'd give her a bath, get her ready to go. And she'd be with me until she was like, I don't know, almost five. I was home. So very close with my kids. And um, I think my wife is much closer than I am. But there's nothing that we don't discuss and can't discuss. And when we have those times, we try to say, look, this is not going to be an easy one. Okay, I'm all ears. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. I'll listen. And then we'll talk. Okay, one last question. Um, You've had an incredible uh, experience in this field in various ways. Looking back, what what have you learned from all this? Or what are the biggest things that you've learned that you've sifted out from everything that you've done? You know, when you're saying that, what came to my mind was do what you've always done, get what you've always gotten. It's time for change. Awesome. Awesome. Well, as you can see, Scott's story is quite remarkable. He's a self-made man of courage, bravery, and he gives to his community, a true role model for our world today. We're honored to have you in our podcast today. Any final thoughts, Scott? Well, I'd like to, uh, I'm going to give my phone number out, and I know you won't mind. I hope you don't. Uh, Area code 619-993-2738. 619-993-2738. And what I'd like to simply do is dare people, encourage people, invite people, challenge people. If you don't want to call or text me and something's not going on, where you think it should be or the way you want it to be. Ask for help. Three of the hardest words in the English language is I need help. So call me if you're not sure who to call and we'll talk about it. You know, I I charge for my coaching, but anybody that knows Tim that calls me and uses your name, I'm happy to give you 15 minutes of free coaching. And when you go on my site, yourcrisiscoach.com, that 15 minutes is a pretty good bargain. And if we need a little more time, we'll work something out. And if I can help you formally, we'll work something out. I mean, I'm here in San Diego, but 90% of my coaching is done by phone or by Zoom. So if you can't call me, don't want to call me, call somebody. But you know what? There's hope and there's help. And if no one's told you yet today, I love you. Scott, I couldn't have said it better. You, you, You hit the nail on the head. Uh, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so I can learn from you, so I can help others. Thanks again. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep your eyes out for my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. And feel free to contact me for speaking engagements through my website, timcrass.com. Have fun, everybody. That's a wrap. Man, I love talking to you. Well, great. You talk my language and all of your experiences. And I grew up Jewish and, you know, Jewish guilt. And my grandmother, I was probably eight or nine years old made me go with her to the movie theater and work she would work me for 12 hours and she would work me. I mean, I was doing everything from the, the cash, taking the cash out front to behind the candy counter to cleaning out the bathrooms to checking if the screen was, was right. And, you know, what was my pay? She'd get me a cheeseburger at lunch, you know, but the education, just being around her was so, I mean, 
she has been profound in my life. You know, the most, she was the matriarch of the family and she ruled with an iron fist. And even my mother who was, uh, you know, had, had problems with alcohol and pills. She was afraid of my grandmother who was all of five foot five. And it just, you know, being around that and learning that and those are experiences that are always with me. And, and uh, so I can relate to how you grew up and what it was like, and especially on the depression side and, and getting out of that. And, you know, and like I told you, Miles, it's just so big in my life. The guy saved my life. I was, I was, I had nothing. I had nothing to offer. I had nothing in my possession except my black uh, golden doodle female who that was my companion and that was it. And we'd end up sleeping in the car quite a bit until I could get back on firm turf and thank God for the program. And God, I love working with my sponsees and, love like yesterday when a guy newcomer called me up and we spent an hour on the phone and you know it's just it's just a beautiful thing and i my message is the same as yours just asking for people to ask for help that you don't have to do life alone it takes more courage to ask for help and you know i don't want guys and their masculinity norms that they learned through their fathers or through the media to be an obstruction for them to get the help they need to, so that they can have better relationships at home in their workplace, you know, that good old boy network, you know, women are, they have a lot to contribute, but men cut them off because they're women and they don't understand that, Inclu- having them inclusive will increase the productivity of the team and you know they're missing the boat and you know i hope i hope everybody gets that help so that they can have help, happy and healthy relationships so thank you my brother my, my pleasure it really was thank you i'm gonna text you from time to time and like uh, <laughs> huh that sounds like a threat and, and later today or tomorrow, I'll, I'll email you some dates in um, probably latter October, maybe December, because this is a good time to be talking about this kind of stuff, family. And, you know, when you, you're, with the name of your book, you don't have to swallow your gun, um, you know, that's something working with first responders you hear about all the time. They'd rather eat their gun than ask for help. I know. Anytime. Anytime I can be of service to you or anybody you know, I am here for you. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have, Have a great day.